0: Hey Maximizers, this is Maximus' call-in radio show number 14. We had a great show today with a lot of questions about uh, ideal exercise routines. We talked about sleep supplementation in terms of magnesium and melatonin. We talked about a lot of behavioral sleep optimization techniques to increase your sleep quality and quantity. What to do if you're having sleeping issues, including potentially insomnia. And we talked, uh, finally, a fun question about how do you overcome being a nice guy and uh, better strategies in terms of improving your dating life. So uh, tune in. Have a great show ahead of you. User from Instagram, uh, Naza, um, asked a question about what workout split do you do? So I was talking about how I do actually a five-day full uh, body workout. So it's technically not a split. Um, I actually try to hit all major muscle groups. Um, basically in every single day. And the reason for that is if um, you actually read the research on hypertrophy or muscle building, um, the biggest determinant of that is volume. So, uh, which is basically like the amount of exercise that you're doing. Um, And there's a bunch of research. We don't know exactly the the optimal number of sets, but it's much higher than most people do, right? Because if you're working out um, a typical bro split, so to speak of three days a week, and you're doing three sets of 10, which is very typical, right? So you're only hitting um, maybe three sets of a particular muscle group per week, um, especially if you're doing that in isolation versus kind of like a compound lift, Um, versus if you're hitting it every single day, um, and you're doing three sets of it for five days a week, now you're doing 15 sets versus three sets. And we know very clearly that people who do 15 sets, uh, maybe even up to 20, 25 sets, Uh, Per week, um, that's the increased volume that results in greater hypertrophy or muscle gain Um, The only thing that that is a caveat to that is I do try to um, Provide variation from day to day, so I'm not doing the same exact for instance chest exercise Every single day you might want to do an incline bench a regular bench uh, a decline bench some butterfly curls some difficult push-up variation and that's your five days a week of chest training but basically monday through friday you're doing a slightly different chest exercise Um, and if you can't do a totally different exercise you can just do slight variations of it so for instance if you if you only have a pull-up bar um, and that's your kind of pull motion and you're kind of using that to work both your biceps and your back you might want to do pull-ups you might want to do chin-ups you want to do narrow grip you can do wide grip um and uh, you can hold, uh, if you have the, the opportunity to hold the handle in parallel, that's five, five different pull-up variations essentially that you can do. So uh, that's a very effective technique. Um, so I just try to do that. I lift weights basically, or do body weight strength training five days a week. Um, and then once a week, I'll try to do some sort of interval exercise like basketball, um, some light sprints, um, or, or something else that just uh, adds a little bit of cardio as well. So that's, that's my current routine. It actually works really well. Um and um, I try to be pretty efficient about it. So, uh including warm up, I'm not working out for more than 30 to 45 minutes. Um I like to kind of get in and out, do hard work, get it done and move on with the rest of my life. Yeah, when we do a sleep question.
1: Cool. So, question we have from Discord is actually from our squad too. What is a better supplement for sleep? Magnesium or melatonin? Any other suggestions?
0: Yeah, great question about what's an optimal supplement for sleep. So I'm going to give you the super long answer to this question, which is going to be kind of my whole sleep, famous sleep optimization thread that I've shared on Twitter. Um, You know, as a clinician, you have to have a good diagnosis or case conceptualization in order to come up with a personalized treatment recommendation. Right. So you have to understand why you're not sleeping well and why you need to take a supplement in the first place. So the reality is if you have good sleep, you don't need any sort of sleep supplement quite frankly. Um, It's usually people take supplements in order to address some sort of issue or deficit that they're having with their sleep. Now the question is, uh, like like I said, why are you not sleeping well? So for instance, if the major driver of your uh, insomnia or sleep difficulties are stress or anxiety, you would probably come up actually with a different intervention or treatment than if someone's reason is because of jet lag or they're trying to sleep at a different time that's a more of a circadian rhythm issue than it is an anxiety or stress issue so um, if it's more a stress or anxiety related then i think it may be useful due to a combination of behavioral and potentially supplemental things in consultation with your doctor. So the first thing that I always emphasize, and people really, really uh, underappreciate the association between walking and physical activity and sleep, a lot of the reason that a lot of people are actually having sleep difficulties these days, specifically due to quarantine, I've said it before and it's worth saying again, is they're incredibly ser- sedentary right now. Most people on average are getting maybe 3,000 steps a day, two, 3,000 steps a day, if, if any. I, I've had some clients who like, they didn't go out of the house and they got literally 145 steps that day. And you can imagine what that does to your body and your metabolism and your sleep when you're literally not moving around, right? So the critical thing is, um, I, I actually have this uh, like uh, rule of thumb, it's Dr. Cam's walking for sleep rule of thumb, is you wanna basically walk a hundred steps um, for every, I think, hour of sleep uh, that you want to get, or, or, or maybe I should say a thousand, yeah, thousand steps for every hour of sleep that you want to get. So if you're trying to get the recommended amount of seven to nine hours of sleep, you should be walking seven to 9,000 steps per day uh, because of the, quite frankly, the best way to fall asleep and deal with stress, deal with anxiety is to do some physical activity and walk it out. So it's very, very underappreciated, but try it. Um, it will work really well. And obviously, if it's safe to do in your neighborhood, I'm, I'm more of a fan of trying to space out the walking all throughout the day. But if you haven't done it and you know you're going to bed in like an hour or two. Um, and like I said, it's safe to do so in your neighborhood. Go for a power walk. Uh, it can be uh, incredibly helpful. Um, if you do kind of like a 30 minute walk, you can put in. You know, a good 3,000 steps if you're a fast walker, maybe even 5,000 steps and get the majority of that in. Um, so that's particularly helpful. Uh, other um, supplements that are very helpful for um, sleep and anxiety are um, magnesium, uh, which is what they're, uh, the user sort of asked about. Um, I think we've talked about magnesium on previous shows. It doesn't make a huge difference uh, in terms of the types of magnesium, as long as it's a, a chelate, uh, meaning that the magnesium is bound to some sort of amino acid. Uh, they have better bioavailability. So the common, uh, super common and cheap one is magnesium glycinate. It's mag- basically magnesium that's bound to the glycine molecule. Glycine is a very common amino acid um, that's like found in, uh, like if you're eating like bone broth and things like that. Very high in glycine. Um, it contains collagen. It's good for your skin as well. So. Um, or it's a constituent of coll- collagen. Uh, so magnesium is a great choice. I- I- I've also a big fan of magnesium uh, uh, taurate, which is magnesium bound to taurine, uh, which is another uh, amino acid and neurotransmitter. That kind of kills two birds with one stone because um, taurine in and of itself is anxiolytic or re- reduces anxiety. So both the magnesium and the taurine are synergistic, essentially, to both reduce anxiety. Um, and you can kind of kill two birds with one stone. The one thing that I would pay attention to, though, is making sure the amount of what's called elemental magnesium that you're getting. Because the thing is, in these chelates, it's only like 9, 10% magnesium, depending on which chelate it is. And the other, like 90, 91%, is the glycine or the taurine. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like it's the delivery vehicle uh, for the compound so the thing is you want to try to get um depending on how much magnesium that you're trying to uh consume at a time maybe 100 200 milligrams at a time you can probably take um up to 400 milligrams a day is i think the recommended daily intake of magnesium Um, but that might mean for instance if you're taking magnesium taurinate in order to get 400 milligrams of magnesium you have to take about 4,000 milligrams uh, of the combination So just kind of pay attention to the dosages good brands will tell you how much real magnesium or elemental magnesium is in it Uh, the bad brands don't really say it they'll just be like oh a thousand milligrams and you're like that's not magnesium it's the compound together Um, another very helpful compound is l thenine which is an amino acid it's a constituent in tea which is why tea is less jittery than coffee Um, it helps kind of smooth out uh, the effects of caffeine um, and kind of the peripheral stimulation that people get in terms of the jitteriness. So, uh, magnesium L-theanine are very helpful. Uh, phosphatidyl serine, uh, is another, uh, uh, kind of, uh, helpful supplement. It helps reduce cortisol. If you follow Dr. Peter Atiyah, uh, he's a big fan of phosphatidyl serine. Uh, again, make sure you use a good brand. Uh, I like tonic brand Um, and uh, Jaro makes a good version of of phosphatidylserine. So those are all, um, you know, helpful supplements, essentially, if you're dealing with a lot of stress or anxiety, like I said, consult with your physician. This is not medical advice. Uh, Make sure it's safe for you to do so and it fits in with the rest of your medication regimens and it doesn't have any contraindications with whatever you're taking. So uh, those are helpful sort of supplement tips. Now, the reason that you take melatonin, I actually think melatonin is heavily overused. People overuse it and they overdose it. Um, and that's because most of the supplements include huge dosages. It's usually like three milligrams, which is about um, ten times the amount that your body naturally makes. I actually recommend people take a tenth of the dose, which is 0.3 milligrams or what's called 300 micrograms. You can actually find brands like Life Extension if you go on Amazon that actually carry this lower dose. I'm more of a fan of the taking the physiological dose, meaning the amount that your body naturally produces because why overdose on melatonin it's it's relatively safe like it's not going to necessarily cause any complications but taking 10 times the amount that your body makes uh it just seems kind of unnecessary to me we don't know what really the long-term ramifications are and then the concern is that you may downregulate your endogenous production of it meaning if you're taking 10 times the amount that your body makes maybe your body's going to be like i don't really need to make as much as my own we know that's true for hormones in general, like testosterone. That's why when injecting testosterone shuts off your own production. Melatonin is actually also a hormone. And so I would say just be a little bit cautious about overdosing on it. Like I said, it's relatively safe, but don't take huge doses of it all the time. Um, the second thing about melatonin is um, it's it's not that great for anxiety or sleep. Quite frankly, it's not going to do much at all. Um, Uh, for that reason but it's great for shifting your circadian rhythm so if you're jet lag you're switching time zones or you're kind of like a late sleeper you go to bed at one in the morning and you're trying to go to bed at like midnight 11 o'clock you're trying to get to sleep earlier and you have a hard time falling asleep because of that shift in your bedtime then that's where melatonin is very magical and effective Um, melatonin naturally endogenously gets produced when nightfall happens and you're getting ready to go to bed and so by taking it a little bit earlier than your body's naturally used to producing it it's kind of signaling to your body okay it's time to go to sleep so uh 300 micrograms i actually like taking an extended release form life extension actually sells one that's kind of sustained release so as opposed to getting absorbed really quickly the half-life of melatonin is very short it only lasts in your system about 30 minutes uh, if you take an extended or sustained release version, it will last for about six hours, which is a, a little bit more like the, the natural peak and trough that your body produces. So I actually really recommend using melatonin kind of as needed, like when you're making these shifts or these transitions, it's very helpful to take, like I said, as a travel supplement, sleep lag supplement, trying to get to bed earlier supplement, but as a daily kind of use thing, um, I don't actually usually recommend it for that reason. Uh, magnesium, on the other hand, uh, is, a, is, a, is a naturally required element and mineral that you get from your food. Unfortunately, most people are magnesium deficient. And so taking a daily magnesium supplement is actually a pretty good idea for most people. Even if you're a really, really healthy eater, unless you're like meticulously tracking on chronometer, you're probably actually not getting enough magnesium um, unless you absolutely know for sure. Um, so it never, never really hurts to take it again, consult with your doctor. Um, so you can see why it's important to understand what the kind of etiology or the root cause is of your sleep problems. If you have stress or anxiety, you may want to take different supplements, have different strategies versus if you're having jet lag or circadian rhythm issues, you probably want to take maybe more of a melatonin or a different type of supplement. And the behavioral intervention is different too. So like, for instance, if you are trying to go to bed earlier, um, you want to get very bright light in the morning. Um, so that's, that's what you want to do. You really want to avoid napping uh, if you're trying to shift your uh, sleep schedule to sleep earlier. Um, you want to make sure it's obviously very dark uh, as much as possible. And you don't want to, um, ideally, you don't want to shift your sleep schedule too quickly, right? If you're going to bed at 1 and all of a sudden the next night you're trying to go to bed at 10, your body is going to, uh, 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 sometimes that works if you're very sleep deprived. But what happens oftentimes is your body will almost interpret it as not bedtime, but almost nap time. And so what will happen is you'll go to bed at 10, you'll wake up at 12 after like a two hour nap, and then you're wide awake and you can't go back to sleep. So the recommendation that I generally make to when I'm working with clients is try to only shift your sleep schedule back 30 minutes, maybe 60 minutes at most at a time. So, right. So if you're going to bed at one the next night, 1230, 12, 1130, 11.00. 10 30, 10. So by the end of the week, over six days, you've cut down on that three hours uh, that you're sleeping too late. And so it's much better to do it gradually because you the, the chance of you running into insomnia issues um, is much lower. And quite frankly, like, have a little patience. Like, doing it over six days, uh, you're not going to miss out on too much sleep. And in fact, long term, you're probably going to sleep better. So uh, you got to kind of take it easy with your rhythm. You got to take it easy with your body. Um, it doesn't like huge gradual, uh, huge shifts. It's much better to be sort of gradual about it. Um, Other helpful sleep tips. um, You wanna maintain, uh, this is just for general, uh, is like uh, an optimal sleeping temperature. Unfortunately, and I've talked about this publicly, this whole notion that you should be sleeping in a room that's 60 to 67 degrees is bullshit because I've actually reviewed the research literature and the thing is, it really depends on um, how much clothes you're wearing It depends on how hot your body runs. Some people naturally have a slightly lower or higher body temperature depending on their metabolism, their body fat, et cetera, and how thick your sheets are, uh, how much humidity there is in the room, how much wind there is in the room. And because there's all these variables, you cannot say there's an optimal sleeping temperature for everyone. Um, There's not, your room should be as dark as possible. I'm actually not a fan of blinds because blinds always leak no matter what kind of great blinds you had. I I think I had double blinds installed in my previous place. They still leak light because they can't sort of touch the window and there's cracks in between them anyway. Um, So the best thing to do is get either blackout shades or quite frankly, old school curtains because you can just like hotel rooms, if you're familiar, you ever go to Vegas, they they do a better job of sort of blocking the light if they're heavy curtains. If you can't get those installed although i think it's a great long-term investment if you own your place or you're staying in a place more than a year it's actually worth it in terms of there's nothing better to invest in than your health Um, i do recommend sleeping with a sleeping mask Um, the problem is that sleeping masks um, also leak especially if you have a little bit more of a prominent nose Um, there's no good sleeping mask quite frankly that i found But there is one that I recommend. It's by Alaska Bear. You can find it in uh, my Twitter sleep optimization thread. We'll post in the show notes afterwards. The clever thing about that mask, and it's pretty cheap, I think it's like 10, 12 bucks, is most masks have just one strap that goes behind your ear. This actually has two straps. And so it can actually like bolt down the bottom of the sleeping mask in addition to the top. So the top one keeps it flush against your forehead. The bottom one keeps it flush against your nose. And so it's less likely to move around less likely to leak light it's still not perfect but i think it's the best one that i found and so i highly recommend that um this one may seem obvious but uh, alcohol and caffeine uh, clearly uh, interfere with sleep quality so the thing though that maybe most people don't know is i actually recommend don't people don't drink um uh, caffeine or alcohol not just within four hours of bed but maybe up to 12 hours so I, i really actually encourage people to not drink Uh, caffeine or alcohol uh, in the afternoon Um, uh, obviously socially the drinking that's a different issue but caffeine use if you're consuming coffee or tea better to keep it in the mornings uh, and not too much in the afternoons the best thing to do if you're not sleeping well is to have in addition to the walking that i mentioned uh, in terms of walking a thousand steps per hour or seven to nine thousand steps for seven to nine hours of sleep is to have a strict bedtime routine so the idea is to have a, a uh do the same exact routine five to 30 minutes before you go to bed every single night i always say it should feel like a goddamn ritual so that's wash up meditate write a gratitude journal snuggle with your partner do whatever it is that you like to do before bed but do it at the same time in the same way every single night maybe if maybe if it's with your partner you need a little variety but other than that it should be the exact same thing um the other thing that i always tell people is basically the most underestimated thing is just sleeping more people underestimate the amount of sleep that they need uh people think they get away with sleeping less than seven hours um i don't think they with rare exception of some people who are genetic freaks uh basically almost everyone needs more than seven hours of sleep in my opinion uh people who get less than seven hours and they're waking up early either have sleeping issues quite frankly or they're using caffeine as a way of artificially you know, staying awake despite their chronic sleep depri- dep- uh, deprivation. Seven to eight hours is minimum. Eight to 10 hours, I would actually argue, if you're doing really heavy physical or mental activity, professional athletes try to sleep closer to nine to 10 hours a night. Um, so if you're doing really, really heavy labor, a lot of physical activity working out, you may want to try to sleep more. Um, and a lot of people, though, in response to that say, well, <clears throat> it's hard to sleep in, and you're right. It is hard to sleep in particularly when you're waking up past sunset sorry sunrise and it is bright and you haven't uh you know done the blackout shades of the the sleeping mask that i mentioned so the thing is you got to go to bed earlier right the earlier that you go to bed then higher the likelihood that you're able to sleep in more and so there's this old um like wives tale of like an hour of sleep before midnight is worth twice as much as the sleep after midnight I don't think that's literally true, but there is something, a hint of truth to that in the sense that if you're going to bed before midnight, you're more likely to sleep more. It's not that the quality is better. Um, and so as a result of that, you know, overall, your sleep is going to be better. Your health is going to be better. So the thing I also tell people, it's better to have a bed time uh, alarm uh, and never actually use a wake up time alarm. Because my philosophy is if you're using an alarm to wake up, you are by definition sleep deprived. You should not be using a wake-up alarm at all. You should only use it as a backup to make sure that you're not going to like randomly oversleep one day and then miss a meeting, essentially. But other than that, you're basically, if an alarm is waking you up and interrupting your sleep in order to jolt you out of bed, you are depriving yourself of sleep because your body's saying, I want more. And you're saying, no, I'm not letting you sleep in, right? You're essentially kind of a form of self-punishment. It's masochistic, in my opinion. Go to bed earlier, fix your sleep issues so that you're naturally waking up at the time that you need to and you have enough time to take care of your kids, go to work, and do whatever it is that you need to do, work out, etc. So now let's get to the morning. First thing that you do when you wake up, get out of bed immediately. We talked about in previous shows, this concept of sleep efficiency. Sleep efficiency is the percentage of time that you actually sleep in bed. You should ideally have a sleep efficiency of 90 maybe even 95 percent if you have you're perfectly healthy so that basically means is when you're in bed you should be asleep knocked out so the part of the way of getting really good sleep efficiency is you want to be able to get to a point where you're falling asleep within five to maybe 20 minutes uh, when you try to go to bed it shouldn't be effortful you should have done your routine you're going to bed at the same time you've done your walking you've done all the other factors to help you go to bed Uh, quickly. So that's your sleep latency. And the other part of it is uh, in the morning, you want to get out of bed immediately. Don't snooze. Snoozing is the worst possible thing in the world next to a bedtime alarm. It's actually worse than a uh, wake up alarm because you are kind of falling back asleep um, and you're not getting restful sleep. It's honestly better to just sleep in for 30 minutes and force yourself to get out of bed than snooze for 30 minutes and half ass it. Um, So don't do that to yourself. Um, Get out of bed. Uh, and ideally get some sunlight on your face if you have a window if you can get outside if possible that helps reset your circadian rhythm and makes it much more likely that you're going to be able to go to sleep um, uh, efficiently that night so i think that's really helpful Um, uh, other sleep tips um, sex or masturbation people don't talk about it but quite frankly if you do it in a healthier and non-compulsive way um, is a good de-stressor and it does release oxytocin, uh, which is kind of the love or cuddle hormone um, in your brain. Uh, in guys, it also releases prolactin uh, and the, that kind of hormone um, uh, promotes sleep onset. So use it responsibly. Don't engage in pornography in bed. Don't have a bunch of random hookups uh, so who are staying over and mess up your sleep quality. Um, so as long as you use that responsibly, uh, it does work. Orgasm it helps people fall asleep. And then finally, long term fixes, uh, if you're overweight or particularly if you're obese and or you have been told that you snore um, and if you don't know if you snore because you don't have a partner, record yourself with an app. There's a bunch of apps out there like Snore Lab that can do that. Um, you may have some issues with sleep apnea. It's a very common amongst people who are obese. So fixing that will actually be the biggest bang for your buck um sleep intervention that you can do it's actually more important than all the other tips that I mentioned previously it'll literally save your life long term because you if you have obstructive sleep apnea you are desaturating your oxygen levels they're dropping it really interferes with your sleep quality and it's associated with all kinds of negative cardiovascular outcomes and mortality literally you die sooner so um, you definitely want to get that taken care of there's a lot of guys though who aren't particularly obese um, they may not meet the full clinical criteria for obstructive sleep apnea, but they still snore because of the physiology of their tongue and their mouth. Um, and they may desaturate and wake up very briefly multiple times a night, even if they're not doing it for long periods of time. Um, there may be, There's really great solutions There's oral appliances that basically shift your jaw a little bit forward. It basically prevents your tongue from falling back into your mouth and uh, actually cuts down on your snoring. And so even if you're not treating your sleep apnea, you can, you can at least address the snoring. There's a lot of great um, dentists and orthodontists who will make that custom appliance for you um, and obviously decide in their opinion whether you need it or not because um, I'm not providing medical advice. So um, a lot of people ask about sleep trackers. Um, here's the thing. They're not necessary. Um, you can just use Apple's health app. Um, there's a lot of passive sleep trackers that just basically based on the, the last time you touch your phone and the first time you touch your phone in the morning it ex- extrapolates essentially um how much sleep that you're getting or you can just look at your you know your 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 the time when you go to bed and wake up and basically figure out how much you're sleeping um there obviously are fancier devices a lot of people are a fan of the aura ring um you can obviously use a wearable watch like the apple watch or Biostrap. uh amazon has one as well Um, or there's some really fancy solutions like the eight sleep mattress that will cool your bed and track your sleep um, I think it can be great if you're trying to optimize. I don't think it's particularly necessary for um, a ton of folks. But um, if it's helpful for you to look at that data and um, you know do that, then you know by all means, go ahead and do that. Just watch out for long-term sleep debt. People, when they're chronically sleep-deprived, basically um, accumulate what's called sleep debt. So if you miss out on sleep like an hour a night over the course of a week, you've accumulated like seven hours of sleep debt. Um, and that can really... Uh, you know, just impair your cognitive functioning, your mood, your productivity, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's really really important to fix um, your sleep issues, and because um, it's very hard to make up sleep debt. Um, you can try to make it up. Obviously, a lot of uh, younger people sleep in on the weekends. That's why teenagers love to sleep until noon. Most people, when they become adults, especially as they move into their thirties, lose the ability to do that over time. Um, and so, uh, one way of alleviating that is through naps. So taking like a 20 to 45 minute nap, um, if you do it early enough in the afternoon, you don't want to nap too late because it'll interfere with your ability to go to bed. The the magical time is about basically seven hours after you wake up is the optimal nap time. So if you think about it, if you're waking up at seven in the morning, that's about 2 p.m., which coincidentally coincides with a lot of cultures, siesta times. So it's probably not a coincidence. Uh, It's kind of a traditional kind of thing. Um, but yeah, taking a short nap. You don't want to take too long of, nap, of naps because then you'll fall into deep sleep and it changes your circadian rhythm and makes it hard to fall asleep. So 20 to 45 minutes seem to be just right. So that's all of my sleep optimization tips in, in a, a, a huge like 20, 30 minute segment. We'll probably chop it up, post it up on YouTube and um, Twitter for later consumption. All right, I see a question that says, isn't it beneficial to wake up at the same time every day as well as to get into a sleep routine? And the answer to that question is yes, it is uh, ideal if you wake up at the same time. It just helps kind of set your circadian rhythm and get used to it. It also just helps set your productivity for the day. The exception to that though is exactly what I said, which is if you have a little bit of sleep debt, like you've you've missed out on whatever, 30, 60 minutes of sleep a night, if you're if you if you have the desire and the ability to sleep in on the weekend, uh, it's better to make up that sleep debt than to be really fastidious about oh my god I need to wake up at the same exact time because I read somewhere that it's optimal. You should listen to your body to some degree, um, and so if your body's asking you to sleep in more, that means you should try to sleep in more. Um, so uh, the thing is though, the optimal long-term solution is to uh, try to go to bed earlier so that you don't need to w- uh, sleep in past your wake-up time. Um, but yeah, if, if you have the opportunity, doesn't get in trouble with work and you can do it on a weekend or whatever, then um, it's useful to be flexible about wake-up times.
1: I have a question about, uh, you, talk, you talked about uh, the Apple Watch. Do you find it uh, use, useful or not? Because I have one and I don't usually uh, use them
0: and I think uh, it's a waste of money. So what do you think? <laughs> um, I think every tool is as useful as the way that you use it. Um, like I said, is it necessary? No. And, and the particular issue with Apple Watch is you got to charge it. So a lot of people don't sleep with it overnight because that's typically when they're charging their watch. Obviously, you can do it during the day so that it has enough juice, but it basically needs to be fully charged before you go to bed in order to you know track your sleep. So it, that's a little bit of the trickiness um, of it. That's why some of the... Um, lower power sleep trackers like amazon halo that do not have a screen or Biostrap which do not have a screen i think whoop doesn't have a uh, screen either they can hold their battery charged much longer and they don't run into the same issue that apple watch does maybe the technology will get better and better over time so that it's not an issue but it kind of is an issue now so unless you're very responsible about charging your apple watch before you go to bed it's not a great sleep tracker for that reason Um, yeah like if you're if you're using the tracking in order to change your behavior then i would say it's useful i always say um, data without behavior change uh, or insight without behavior change is basically useless so if you're just collecting this information and you're not acting on it in any way you do not need to be tracking your sleep in fact in sort of psychological uh, psychotherapy practice we're generally only self-monitoring or what's called tracking for short periods of time while people are actively trying to make changes so for instance if you came in and said i'm getting six hours of sleep I do not feel well rested and productive. I would like to increase it to seven to nine hours. I'd be like, great. Let's track your sleep for whatever, how long we're working on that, right? So maybe after two, three, four weeks, we fixed your sleep issue going through all of the optimization techniques. At that point, I would say, now you're getting eight hours of sleep a night. You're doing it consistently. You're not having any problems. You don't really need to track anymore at that point. It's, it's, It's useful when you're actively trying to change or improve upon something that you need to track. So I use tracking a little bit more as needed uh, as opposed to something that you meticulously need to do every single day. Because unless you're looking at it and doing something differently, uh, it's just kind of a vanity metric. Yeah. So um, I'm a student and I am, uh, I'm graduating soon. Mm-hmm. And uh, while I'm graduating, I'm working late really nice. And I try to sleep early. Like I set the schedule like, at midnight i should fall asleep Mm -hmm. but it never happens i always fall asleep at two three in the morning yeah and i tried all the i saw so many youtube videos you have to breathe correctly you have to lay a certain position so i tried it all Mm -hmm. and still it's been like
1: since this year started
0: yeah that i um that I can't sleep So you're saying you're trying to go to bed at midnight, but you're not falling asleep till two, three in the morning. So you're, you're are you just tossing and turning for two to three hours basically in bed?
1: Yes, I am.
0: OK, um, well, I can't diagnose you uh, over Clubhouse, but uh, it's it's highly likely that you probably have like insomnia at that point. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of the sleep hacks and optimization tips that I'm sharing are for sort of a non-clinical you know, audience. But once it's kind of getting that bad, you know, um, you I would actually highly suggest that you talk to a doctor about it or see a psychologist. The best treatment for insomnia is something called CBTI, or it's called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, it's a it's an evidence based technique. The it has actually one of the best uh, essentially effect sizes in all of uh, behavioral treatments. It works really well. Basically, um, that's the summary. There's a lot more nuanced behavioral techniques that are in cbti which we probably don't have time to go into for this show Um, but one very quick tip and this is like a tenth of what's in cbti is you don't want to be tossing and turning in bed for two to three hours so if you are going to bed at midnight and you're not falling asleep within 15 to 20 minutes get out of bed go sit in a chair in your room or ideally even leave the room go sit in your living room if you have a living room um, and do something else don't uh, go on your phone don't watch television don't go on your laptop you don't want the bright light shining in your eyes you want to uh, read or do something calming um, and don't go back to bed until you're tired so if that's 30 minutes if it's an hour that's fine you, you, you'd be tossing and turning in bed anyway but it's better to be sitting on a couch uh, and and not associate the bed with the stress and anxiety of not being able to fall asleep Uh, Than doing what you're doing now. The reason is as we talked about earlier is you want high sleep efficiency, right? And if you're not asleep while in bed, you're ruining your sleep efficiency because if you're going to bed at 2, 3 in the morning, let's say you're waking up at 8 and you only got 5 hours of sleep even though you're in bed um, for 8 hours, then your sleep deficiency is 5 divided by 8 or 62.5%. That's way below what it should be in terms of the 90 plus percent. So that's a very helpful, um, you know, one of the helpful techniques in CBTI. Um, uh, It's kind of like stimulus control and sleep hygiene. Um, But uh, I would look up um, CBTI online. There there are some companies that are doing digital versions of it. Uh, One's called Sleepio, Sleep IO. Uh, It's part of a company called Big Health. Um, They have sort of like an automated computerized version of it. There's a couple other versions of it out there, too. Uh, But I would say, yeah, at this point, you you probably have, probably, um, like I said, not diagnosing insomnia, and it it may require a more active treatment than just some of these like sleep tips or supplements that we're talking about here. Uh,
1: Because something I noticed is um, during the day, I always take a nap for three, four hours. Mm -hmm. Since it it happened and I can't sleep at night, during the day, whenever I take a nap, it's always three, four hours.
0: Yeah, well you're, 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 uh, that's a, it's a huge part of the problem then, right? So now you see why you're having falling a, uh, trouble falling asleep for two to three hours, because you're napping for three to four hours. That's not a nap. You're actually like breaking up your sleep into two different, two different chunks. So the thing is, I know that makes you feel better in the short term, but it's actually perpetuating the problem in the long term. So if I was working with a client that had a similar kind of problem, I would wean you off of the naps. Like I said uh, in the earlier part of the segment, 20 to 45 minutes is the maximum amount that you can nap without significantly interfering with your ability to fall asleep that night. So it's gonna suck in the long, in the short term, you're gonna feel tired because you're not getting the amount of sleep that you want, but it's gonna help you fall asleep better in the long term. So you kind of have to bite the bullet a little bit and not take these super long uh, naps. It's not even a nap, it's a midday sleep. You gotta, you gotta cut, down, cut out the midday sleeping um, because it's gonna help your ability to fall asleep um better i would in fact if i had to bet would say if you cut out the napping during the day and you worked out every day because it sounds like it's something that helps you sleep better those two things alone would probably highly likely fix uh your sleep uh issue which which sounds like insomnia uh well yeah you got i mean here's the thing unless you have true narcolepsy and you cannot control falling asleep that's a different issue and and you know there's some treatments for that I think you're just chronically sleep deprived and you fall into this habit of sleeping during the day you got to just catch yourself uh in terms of doing it don't allow yourself to fall asleep especially for three four hours you're not doing that in class you're doing that at home um like I said set an alarm if you're tired 20 to 45 minutes uh force yourself to get up um, and you're gonna feel better long term so you can help it uh the thing is you're not in the habit of controlling it uh and you've gotten kind of used to giving into it uh, but like I said, it's going to suck for a couple of days. You're going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to feel groggy. If you fight through the fatigue, you're going to fall asleep better at night and you'll fix this issue long term. But you can't keep doing what you're doing because you're just going to get the same results. Okay, Dr. I, I your advice. Sounds good. Come, come back on a future show. and Let me know how it goes.
1: All right. So this question actually came from Discord. I'd like to ask if it's possible for a man, especially a younger man in his late 20s, early 30s, if it's possible to shed the nice guy personality and what he should do to become someone worthy of respect and difference after a lifetime of not putting themselves first and being afraid of speaking up because
0: others might see him as rude or entitled. Yeah, this is a great question about sort of how do you overcome the nice guy personality? So I think the first thing that I recommend is if you suspect that you're a nice guy, um, and I don't mean that literally, obviously it's a good thing to be nice or kind, but let's be, let's be strict about what we mean by a nice guy in quotations, uh, a nice guy is not someone who's nice or kind per se. It's someone, um, in an almost sort of uh, subconsciously manipulative way is thinking that if they act in a certain way that's like deferential or or subservient then they can get what they want out of typically a a woman if they're a heterosexual male right and so in some ways it's actually not a nice strategy it's kind of a manipulative strategy because someone essentially thinks they have uh, um in low enough self-esteem that they don't have are not bringing uh enough to the table right because if you're a high value man if you have high self-worth then you realize that you are someone of value and that you can contribute value to a relationship you don't need to buy someone's affection right or bribe them or uh, entice them with things or experiences right but if you're kind of a nice guy you think oh well if i just do these nice things if i take her out to these extravagant uh, you know, dinner dates, if I sit there and, and listen to her complain about all the guys who are assholes and, and you know, uh, don't treat her well, then she'll like me. And the, the sad reality of that strategy is it doesn't really work very well. Um, and so I think part of owning up to sort of the nice guy, um, you know, uh, issue is, is to realize the underlying psychological purpose behind it, which is it's really... Um, a coping mechanism for low self-worth, low self-esteem. And it's a compensatory behavioral strategy to think that if I'm not worth it uh, as a man, that I need to essentially like purchase love or or behave in a way where I am essentially purchasing it through my effort, right? I need to labor for love. And that's really sad. Yeah, I don't think people like, look, you, relationships are work It's certainly, you know, you gotta do things and treat the other person nicely, clearly. Um, but if you're going over the top, I think women can sniff that out. They actually have very good instincts in terms of like, why is he treating me so nice? Right. I have lots of stories about this. I've, you know, with my female friends, I'll talk about guys showing up with like, you know, bouquet of 24 roses, um, on a first date, which in another context, like we're dating it's Valentine's day would be a very, uh, you know, affectionate kind of thing, but it's too much too soon. And that guy is just trying too hard, and it was actually a huge turnoff for her. So that's a great example of going too far. There's a great book on this by a colleague of mine. I believe his name is Dr. Robert Glover. If I got his name right, it's literally called "No More Mr. Nice Guy." Uh, I highly recommend it for people who, if you're if you're identifying that in your uh, yourself, um, then. Uh, he has a lot of great strategies for overcoming it, which go far beyond the purposes of this, this podcast at some point, actually, I should probably invite him to the podcast so he can talk all about it, but, uh, I highly recommend it. It's kind of the the manual for it. Um, and it's a great strategy. Um, by the way, that question had a couple words at the end and he said he was concerned about being coming off as rude. Was that the question? Different after a lifetime of not putting themselves
1: first and being afraid of speaking up because others might see him as rude or entitled.
0: Yeah. So that's a, that's a really interesting thing, right? So your, your understanding is part of the psychology of this person's question, right? They're saying, well, if I didn't act this way, other people would perceive that I'm rude or entitled. So, you know, in a kind of a cognitive therapy frame, you'd ask the person, well, what's the evidence for that, right? Like if you just act, normally without kind of getting into this excessive nicety have people ever accused you of being rude or entitled has that happened consistently over time from different people probably not a lot of the kind of social anxiety that people have is that they're concerned about the judgment of other people right that they're going to be perceived as weird basically Um, when most of the time people are not thinking about you as much as you are thinking about yourself so the moment that we realize that um we kind of reduce a little bit some of our concerns about judgment that you have so i would actually work through with that person and maybe you can work through with yourself the person who asked that question and just saying is this really true like do people constantly think that you're rude or entitled and i bet by the way if they do in the rare instances they do has nothing to do with you being nice acting nice or subservient or or over the top is does not come off as rude or entitled Um, Or if you don't, it just comes off as neutral, right? If you're just like doing nothing and you're just standing there and you're not doing much, people aren't going to think you're rude or entitled. Um, You just, I don't know, you're kind of like a blob. Um, People uh, 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 come off as rude or entitled when they act in a way that's arrogant or smug, which ironically is also essentially a defense against low self-worth or low insecurity. People who come off as narcissistic are essentially compensating for low self-worth And one way of compensating with it, like some people go down the nice guy route, it's very kind of beta male behavior. Uh, Other guys kind of go this sort of narcissistic route where they they come off as cocky, right? Uh, Ironically, it's the same root cause of low self-esteem. The sad thing is that the cocky narcissists actually do better uh, with women, um, at least until they, you know, women kind of wake up to that strategy, but at least short-term it works better. I don't obviously recommend that for a long term dating strategy, um, but women are attracted to confidence. And so um, while it's a better strategy, um, it does come off as rude or entitled. So th- the answer is to be neither a nice guy nor a rude, arrogant, uh, narcissistic prick. Uh, the The reality is you have to look, um, I hate to use the word be yourself, but you need to be your authentic self, right? Reduce some of the concerns or these, these thoughts, diffuse from some of these thoughts that people are going to judge you or evaluate you as being rude um, or entitled they probably will not and at the same time you need to change some of your inner beliefs and saying look I'm a man of worth uh, or at least working well you always are a man of work but you're you're working towards being even more effective more productive more successful etc and these are natural traits that will attract people to me and I don't need to act in a nice guy quote-unquote subservient manner in order to attract people I'm not gonna win them over with effort. I'm gonna win them over because I'm a person of worth and hopefully they'll be attracted to that. And if they're not, they're not the right person for you, right? People, guys have this typical fantasy of uh, pining or idealizing over someone. They'll find someone on TikTok or some um, YouTube or Instagram influencer and be like, oh, this woman is perfect. Um, You know, uh, if only she would like, you know, uh, respond to my DMs and I would love her. And you're like, yeah, maybe you're physically attracted to her, but A, you can't love love someone that you have no actual connection, meaningful uh, connection to. And second, if she doesn't like you, uh, you're you're almost, uh, it's an avoidance of reality. You're saying, if this person was someone other than who they are, right, for someone who fundamentally doesn't, is not attracted to, let's say your type, for whatever reason that is, uh, she likes guys that are, I don't know, six foot four and purple, and then you're just not that, that thing. Um, you're saying, okay, I, I wish she was she was literally different. Uh, she, and so you're actually you're basically having this totally irrational belief that I wish that this person looked exactly the same, but they had almost like a personality or brain transplant and liked other other people so that they can magically love me. So I'm like, you're not in love with that person. You're in love with an idealized uh, image of someone who's not a real human being, right? Because you can't p- pick and choose essentially parts of people and amalgamate them together into some fantasy right so the the conclusion from all that though is when someone rejects you or someone's not into you then you should be like you should celebrate that and you'd be like you know what that person was not a match for me um now if they did that for genuine reasons if you treated them poorly and that's the reason they rejected you you need to fix that and go to therapy but if it's just because you're not their type then you know take it take the L so to speak Find someone who is really into you. And I guarantee you there's, you know, seven billion people in the world. There's some someone out there for you. Um, you just got to find them.
1: We had a comment on YouTube. All those girls are posing
0: anyway. <laughs> That's true. Well, I, 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 I question actually the pursuit of uh, in influencers. Uh, you know, funnily, I was talking to um, the, uh, an influencer, Ty Lopez, about this because he's also really into personality testing. And he said he's, he's tested a lot of in, uh, Instagram influencers and they come off um, very high in narcissism. Uh, and pursuing someone, a relationship with someone who is highly narcissistic is, does not typically bode well if you wanna stay together uh, long-term. So yeah, don't, don't marry a narcissist if you can avoid it. Uh, lot, a lot of great questions for today. Thank you for everyone who joined us on Instagram, on Twitter Live. Thanks for everyone who joined us on Clubhouse as well. Um, from all over the world. Uh, and thanks everyone on uh, Discord and YouTube. And I'll catch you all next Thursday, six o'clock Pacific time. Um, and yeah, if I didn't get to your questions today, my apologies. Uh, we're, you know, we try to run through this as quickly as possible. Submit them on the uh, Discord channel um, and or email uh, email me, uh, cam at MaximusTribe.com um, and we'll uh, queue it up for next week. All right, take care everyone. Be happy, healthy uh safe and uh treat your loved ones well and don't be a nice guy